Evening, ladies and gentlemen. The Hawk Story Part 2. As people have said, my name is Chris Roberts. And I'm going to cover flight test activity from the T1 to the preparation for T45. 13 years, August 74 to April 1988. This was while I took an eight-year gap from my 25-year career as a Harrier pilot. But it was a very, very rewarding time. Just to remind you about some of the aspects that relate to this, and I have been asked to cover an awful lot. I could keep you here for two hours if I did it, but I won't. Unfortunately, Harry has covered some of it, so that will help me speed up. So you're going to see some pictures you've already seen. There were no prototypes. The very first airplane that flew was built on production tooling. That kind of program doesn't exist anymore. The aircraft had to be test-flown according to FP970 requirements and acceptance standards. And I will be talking about that a bit from time to time because it is relevant. Okay, so there we are, cracking off the T1 initial flight, Duncan Simpson, chief test pilot, and you well know the date now. Now, these were the main problems that uh, appeared and had to be dealt with in those first few months of test flying. And I'll go through them one by one. First of all, the ground handling was not good. Some people would say the T1 ground handling is still not good. But at that stage, it was really, really bad. And that was basically because it had a lot of nose-leg stiffness, which was easy to, to solve, and it also had cable-operated brakes, probably a company hangover from the Hunter days. And they had to be changed. The combination of the steering stiffness and the delay in the brakes made it very, very difficult. So it's now got foot motors and many hydraulic systems. So that was all pretty straightforward. There was a lot of engine vibration, notwithstanding what Harry said about the, you know, the proven aspect of the engine. Uh, it tended to show itself up in inverted flight and was due to shaft shuffling. Fortunately, Rolls-Royce had a fix, so that could be sorted out relatively early. Directional stability was weak. I say was weak, people would say it's still weak on the early versions and generations. It had a particular problem, which was yaw with power. Now, power changes affected the directional trim. Now, this is because the internal pressure in the fuselage was able to escape through the seals under the tailplane. And that altered the directional trim when you altered the power. There you see a photograph of those seals, which we call the bacon slices. And for many years, the solution to this problem was very fine technical requirements on the maintenance of what we call the bacon slices. The airflow across the fin base was not that good. Now, we discovered later, when we did the export aircraft with the tail-breaking parachute necessary for the higher all-up weights, and there you see that bottom photograph on the left was the tail parachute installation actually produced a better airflow across the back end of the aeroplane. And that's why you see the T1 standing there with the export version revised back end, which was a, a, an in-service mod to improve the T1. Basically, the Hawk is too short at 39 feet. 5% of linear dimensions across the board were removed for the final version. If that 5% had not been taken out of the longitudinal length, the Hawk would have been really very, very good. It needed another foot, foot and a half. T1 
tailplane stall. Harry's covered it. It was particularly present in the undercarriage up and flaps down situation. There you can see on the top picture the full span flap vane, and in the lower picture you can see the cutback external um, out, outboard portion. That was the simple way to re-energize the airflow over the tailplane at that critical point. I'll come to a bit more about that later. This reduced the CL, but it was an acceptable price to pay for one of the most critical problems because tailplane stall was not considered to be a good thing for a trader. Stall characteristics revealed themselves quite early as being far too abrupt. Now, throughout my sort of eight years on the Hawk at Dunsfold, I spent so much time working on the lift programs that I'm going to concentrate a little bit more on that now, and I'll explain more about this abrupt stall. So, stall characteristics and wing dressing. There you can see the initial configuration for first flight, a single inboard fence and no other dressing. That was as a result of the half-scale model in the Hatfield Tunnel that did most of the high-lift development, which actually became a 916th model after the 5% reduction. Now, flight experience did not follow expectations. And basically, the Hawk Wing is an extremely good generator of lift, but it's got a very steep CL slope. And this means that when you get to the top, if one wing pops before the other, you get a very rapid fall-off and a very high rate of roll. You're talking about well over 90 degrees in less than half a second. Again, that's not good for a trainer. So we used the best processes to try and find a better wing dressing, and that was good old-fashioned tufting to try and figure out what we had to do. And we did actually produce very docile handling, largely by giving away more CL, and we managed to achieve the specified approach speeds. Well, what exactly was that final dressing? Most of you are probably familiar with it, so I apologize if you are. There you see on the top left side the basic T1 configuration where that inboard fence has been moved further outboard and is now in line with the flap hinge. It's grown seven vortex generators per wing, but that was nothing to do with the stall, etc. That was all to do with critical drag rise mark number handling and control of a thickening boundary layer. There you see two breaker strips. That's one of the characteristics of the Hawk Wing. She doesn't like giving you buffered warning. So in this generation, we had to create it artificially, which again was giving away CL. So we're talking about an aeroplane which is capable of producing a CL in the order of 1.85 with this basic version of the wing, and we're cutting it right back to around 1.6. Some people say it was 1.55, other people say it was 1.65 or 6.7. But nevertheless, the numbers are not critical other than to point out that to arrive at this final T1 configuration, we had given away a lot of lift. Harry's mentioned the 50 series, and I just wanted to cover the fact that this basic configuration for the T1 then naturally went into the 50 series configuration, and that was standard. We made other changes to the plane, but not externally, other than the tail-breaking parachute, and there was that knock-on benefit to the T1. The Mark 53, the Indonesian one, was the baseline version for our T45 proposal. 
Now, introducing G-Hawk ZA-101, Harry has mentioned it. Indeed, it was the 176th aeroplane. We bought it back, which is why you see 175 as the number of Hawks for the RAF. And we built it to the five pylon Mark 50 standard. There you see it top right in the Mark 60s configuration. Harry's talked about the pylons. I'm going to go to the, sorry, the uh, mini fences. I'll come to them in a minute. And she was a bit like Trigger's brush. All right? Same plane, but it's had a lot of configuration changes. Before I move right on to the 50 series, I think I'd just like to come back to, to one point, which is relevant. There you see the Finnish Mark 51. They challenged our published stall and stall warning speeds, by which time, of course, the T1 was well in service, and we had the backing of A&E, A squared, E squared, on the release to service and so on and so forth. So we were fairly confident that the numbers that were published for the Mark 50, scaled up a tad because it was a heavier aeroplane, were, were correct. Uh, and we eventually came to a compromise uh, with the Finnish Air Force. The difference was about a knot on the stalling speed and another knot or two on the stall warning. Unfortunately, they were in opposite directions, according to the Finns. So the margin was very narrow. But the clue we missed, if you remember this slide, was the FP 970 requirements and acceptance standard. The Finnish Air Force did not test their aircraft to those standards. And they were the first organization that put the Hawk through a sophisticated flight test program other than the manufacturer. Moving on. Meanwhile, the Dunsfold test pilots believed that there were two poor aspects of the Hawk's handling and air combat maneuvering. Buffered onset was too abrupt. The aircraft flew more like a jet provost than a fighter. And the RF QFIs at Valley complained about a 0.7 notch. But what was this notch? There you see a graph I drew to explain it to them, CL against IMN, and you see the buffered onset and buffered boundary curves. This was the only graph I ever drew by hand after I left ETPS. And there you see the 0.7 notch, which is actually 0.65 to about 0.75. It causes a discontinuity in the linear progression of the application of buffet and so on and so forth. And the QFIs did not like that aspect of the aeroplane. So weapons clearance flying on ZA-101. Harry's talked about the stores we could carry. I think one of the relevant points I wanted to bring out is that if you look down that line, you can see that all of the stores on the five pylons are all lined up very effectively with the cantilever pylon and the sweep back angle that was finally hit upon. And therefore, we had a very convenient CG line. And we ended up in a situation where if the weapons fitted on the pylon, we could fly it with few or no handling limits. I could spend 20 minutes here showing you photographs of store configurations, but I won't. I don't have time, and I'm sure you'll fall asleep. Consequently, the Hawk was more successful than the French Alpha Jet. All of the other air forces that bought the aeroplane were looking for more than just a trainer. And this is where we beat the Alpha Jet hands down. And it brought the need for better hot and high, all of this stuff, particularly when the marketeers came back and said they'd sold something, can we fly it? They always did that to us. We were looking at Zimbabwe 
and the Gulf states. And as Harry said, we needed more thrust, which was easy from rolls, and we needed better use of available lift. So back to the drawing board. Company demonstrator, clean up the wing, start again. We took this very seriously. We wanted to really understand our wing better. We had the time now. In the early days of T1, it was a bit of a rush. But more importantly, you could argue, we needed more data for T45 competition. Now, we needed to accurately match tuft activity with Buffett and CL. And you can see from those detailed photographs, there was a situation where some tufts thrashed themselves to death and others seemed unconcerned. And the way we did that is we installed two cine cameras in the rear cockpit, focused on each wing. They were linked into the instrumentation package, the orange box, which was always in the rear cockpit on G-Hawk. All right, and there's a little doll's eye which was linked to the pilot's event. So we had this complete circle of joy. The instrumentation numbers, the pilot events, and the pilot event had something he could feel, he'd talk about it, the cameras would record it, and it was all fed, fed into instrumentation. Because we were tinkering with single numbers of knots that we had to control. And that was the new high lift configuration, it's been mentioned. Three new mini fences and a relocated mini fence. Those big Toblerone breaker strips had gone. Sorry, a relocated mini breaker strip. Much, much better maneuver handling. Now we had a hawk that flew like a hunter. What a terrible thing to say so many years after you produced one fighter. And that was adopted for the 60 series aeroplanes all around the Gulf, Switzerland, etc. News of a new four-fence-per-wing config for Hawk caused some amusement, suggesting that we had taken a leaf out of the Eastern Bloc's aircraft design handbook. <laughs> but it wasn't that bad, was it? <laughs> okay, meanwhile, the Hawk was to become Goshawk, the T-45, to replace those two, the T-2 Buckeye and the TA-4J. It actually overturned a spec for a twin-engine aeroplane, but that's another story, largely to do with catapult survivability. This is the pile of paper that we submitted to NAVAIR on the morning the tenders had to go in, just to convert a simple Hawk to a simple Navy carrier-based trainer. Amazing. Now, the USN selected the Hawk early. They had this plan, and they'd published it, as they had to do in the American system, and it was going on for so long, something like 10 years, they saw what they want, and they cut it off and selected the Hawk well before they should have gone to a final choice, and that knocked some of the competitors. Now, G-Hawk, we'd taken it to the States three times, we'd proved the point, and we'd been actually in a position with the wing lift development work we'd done and the installation of some typical Navy stuff in the cockpit. We were able to demonstrate flying the Navy ball, as the Navy calls it, the mirror landing system, with a no-flare landing. Boom, just they will have to do on the carrier. And we took it to Pax River and demonstrated it to Navy admirals, and they loved it. The point I made earlier, all right, I said I'd come back to it, FP-970 was firmly rejected by the USN. The stall tests in that document required level deceleration at idle power. They fly to mill specs. We should have twigged earlier. A maximum decelerate of half a knot per second using approach power which means you set the airplane up, pull it into a climb, and then control the deceleration rate using changes of rate of descent. 
And that showed that the CL max occurred before full control was reached. And this had some very significant implications on where we were and what we'd been claiming. Funnily enough, it was actually an ex-ETPS tutor on loan from the United States Navy who'd got to know the Hawk very well during his two years in the UK. He then ended up as project pilot for the Navy for T-45. And he was the first to twig this clue that we had missed, notwithstanding what the Finns told us. So we had a problem and therefore some innovation was required. So this is Hawk T1 mod 6025, which has got that Mark 60 series export wing, but with a drooped leading edge, which is our extrapolation to go forward because the 60 series high lift wing wasn't quite enough. Tied in with the solution to tailplane stall, the Smurfs side-mounted root, root fence, side-mounted unit root fence, fuselage vanes. Basically, the use of vortex flow to replace seal lost by the cutback flap vein. And that meant that when the tailplane nose down angle was at its greatest, it then aligned itself with that vein and it had a root extension. Perfect. The most brilliant bit of aerodynamics I came across in my entire flying career. Wasn't it, Barry? Okay, all these trials were UK-based. The first T-45 was in build in the United States, and therefore we had a lot of U.S. Navy visitors. Now, you can tell this is a VIP, because we've got nice, shiny flying kit on. My flying suit has actually got its badges on. I've got nice new flying gloves. That's how we treated VIPs. They came to our door in droves. They had selected the aircraft because it was so, because it so well met their requirements, a robust, proven, and economic trainer. They were not comfortable with some of the data flowing from Douglas, the contractor. So against their own rules, they visited and talked with the subcontractor. One thing Washington, the whole system, government, and Navair didn't take into account was one simple fact. The aviators wanted a perfect Navy aircraft, which wasn't what they agreed to buy. The aviators wanted all the lift they could get, and they wanted the T-45 configured like an F-18, and the aircraft it was replacing, the TA-4J, which is where the leading-edge slats came from. Now, we believed in BAE that we did not need leading-edge slats to meet the Navy requirement as it was at that stage. These slats were serious overkill. But that is a contentious point. And the Navy, Navy aviators also wanted more directional stability, which is where the single-seat fin came, up, came from, which was the extension on the top, and the ventral fin, because, in fact, the airplane was flying at higher alphas than we had anticipated. So the ventral fin was very effective. So despite the concept of a minimum change... The T-45 finally became a 100% typical carrier-based aircraft. Now, some things had to be done. On the top left, you see the Smurfs going in, fuselage vanes. The wind tunnel stuff's on the right, basically proving the speed brakes. They had to move because the Hawk speed brakes under the fuse, which is not good for a carrier-based lander with those hook wires. We need a lot more internal fuselage strength to take the forces on the catapult and the arresting. 
So the aeroplane gained between one and a half and two tons more weight. So she's a heavy beast. Land-based undercarriage, dainty, becomes carrier-based agricultural gear. The nose leg needed a little beef too, Twins, no, twin nose wheels, steering, launch bar, hold back, all that stuff. Harry's mentioned it. And there you see the full gamut. About the only thing we've not covered so far is the composite stabilizer. All right, we fitted a stabilizer instead of a tailplane. Complex change. It was actually a bigger span. Um, and I mentioned this additional structure for the catapult and arrest. The carrier-based forces would have torn a hawk apart in terms of longitudinal integrity in a very few number of launches and arrests. The airplane was so good, they reduced the planned buy size. Now, that's called shooting yourself in the foot. All right? Now, it's a great pity that a lot of the work that was carried out was to make it operable from the smallest carrier that was in the Navy fleet, the USS Lexington. And that carrier was withdrawn before the T-45 went into service. Now, I can't believe... If the Navy left-handed talked to the Navy right-hand, they wouldn't have known that because now they use the big mothers, all right? And a few knots more on the approach speed would have made a huge difference to the CL requirements and the development program in time and cost. Now, all the extra changes had made the aircraft even heavier and very high drag on the approach. And I flew it... September 1988, and I discovered we were flying at Yuma, where the temperature is very high. If you don't know Yuma, it's down in the desert, about as near to Mexico as you can get. And on a go-around, sorry, an overshoot, I was unable to climb and turn. So if I had to turn early, I couldn't keep climbing. If I had to get to a minimum height before I turn, I couldn't turn. So more thrust was needed because of this weight growth and the increase in drag due to all this configuration. I remember coming back and telling the program manager, Gordon Hodson, when he said, what's it like? I said, Gordon, it's a total dog. And it had to have more thrust. Single-seat Hawk engine seemed to do the trick, and it restored the sort of performance of the aeroplane to somewhere near a heavy 60-series aircraft. So it's not as good as the T1 in terms of thrust-weight ratio. So there you go. $450 million cost overrun. Customers said the aircraft didn't meet the spec. Contractor, contractors, said the goalposts were moved. Typical problem. Equals very big legal case. So, making a land-based aircraft capable of going to sea wasn't easy. And when I read those press reports about the natural reaction to the cancel of the F-35B, oh, we'll put Typhoon on the new carriers. I went, ah, yeah. <laughs> but the lawyers made a lot of money. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is my bit of the Hawk story. Flight test from T1 to the onset of T-45, and I'm sure we'll be taking questions later. Thank you.